This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seats, two-term incumbents, independents. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Rungery Country. And I'm Fran Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And PK, there's really only one story this week, Ministry Gate. Scott Morrison's secret portfolio accumulation. We now know he appointed himself to five additional ministries without the knowledge of those ministers in most cases. In fact, in most cases, without the knowledge of anyone except him, the GG, and a handful of public servants. And his whole justification was around this was, you know, not a power grab. This was about emergency powers that might be required for the pandemic, except PK, we now know by his own admission, it wasn't all about that. There was one he took control of, the resources portfolio, that wasn't anything about that. And we know that because uh, news.com reporter Sam Maiden has told us. And Sam will be joining us shortly to talk more about this. But before we sort of get further into the the why, the how, the what the, um, let's just go through how it played out this week, starting in reverse with the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison's justification on Wednesday of why he secretly made himself the minister for many things. There was a clear expectation established in the public's mind, certainly in the media's mind, and absolutely certainly in the mind of the opposition, as I would walk into question time every day, that I as Prime Minister was responsible pretty much for every single thing that was going on. Every drop of rain, Every strain of the virus, everything that occurred over that period of time. Every drop of rain, PK, some sort of bit of a messiah complex creeping Prime in Prime Minister there, for raindrops. It was a really long and, and sometimes defensive press conference. I, I know we were all glued to it. He really came out swinging, you know, declaring these were extraordinary times. And as you heard, they're basically saying people expected me to fix everything. And so I did. But, um, you know, that doesn't explain a few things, PK, including the secrecy. No, it doesn't explain the secrecy at all. It was really bizarre, as many of his colleagues have said to me, super weird. Uh, he defiantly... Super weird. De- they did. They've actually had people say, weird? Like, what? Uh-huh. Um, he defiantly defended his actions, as you say, uh, arguing they were emergency measures taken at an extraordinary time. Now, we can fact check that. It was absolutely an extraordinary time. But it falls over when you look at some of the timing uh, for the latter decisions, Treasury and Home Affairs specifically, and when he made those decisions was at a time, yeah, broadly we're in a pandemic. We still are. But that doesn't mean the pandemic's not over. Just look at the numbers of people um, in hospital. But the actual timing of the Treasury appointment and the Home Affairs appointment I actually think is quite quite questionable for him to use this defence still, Right. Um, it was a really kind of only I know, only I can understand the role here of a prime minister, walk in my shoes. This idea, Fran, that he needed these additional powers. And then he was really specific that he he decided to 
become the minister in these portfolios in areas where where there were unilateral actions that could be made. He wanted to have these in terms of an emergency. But those powers, actually, I cannot understand why he needed the unilateral powers of a minister. He still hasn't quite explained no. why. And the other part of it is when when answering why he didn't tell his ministers, who were clearly like red hot with rage, which we'll get to, particularly Karen Andrews, the former Home Affairs Minister. When explaining that, he says that um, he didn't want to really uh, basically, you know, alarm anyone. Uh, there was the specific words he used were he didn't want it to be misconstrued and misunderstood. Let's just unpack what that means. It means that he thought that there would be outrage about his power grab because that's how it looks. So he actually did anticipate that response, therefore kept it secret. That actually, in my view, makes us kind of walk out the end of that press conference with more questions, doesn't it? Yeah, look, there's a whole lot of holes in his defence, if you like, um, from yesterday and all through the week and some of his sort of public musings through the week that then contradicted later ones. But let's let's just pause for a moment because we will go through all the sort of the why and the why does it matter and the what actually happened here with Sam Maiden. But Let's just let's just go back and remind everyone how this story kicked off because that's important. It was it was started on the weekend really as what's been called a, a humble brag, revealed in a new book called Plagued by two News Limited journalists, Simon Benson and Jeff Chambers. Turns out they had real-time access to Scott Morrison during the years of the pandemic. This book's the, you know, tells the story of how the PM and his government managed through that whole wild ride and sometimes frightening ride and very, very difficult ride. Um, but the first excerpt from Plague revealed the fact that Scott Morrison had quietly appointed himself to the portfolios of health and finance back in March 2020 at the height of the pandemic as an insurance policy, really, as it was revealed you know, as a bit of a brag, as I said, about how the PM took it upon himself to offset the unfettered and previously unused powers the Biosecurity Act bestowed on the health minister. But, PK, it caught people's attention and by Monday morning, the new Prime Minister, he was all over it. This is uh, very contrary to our Westminster system. It was, It is unbecoming, it was cynical and it was just weird that this has occurred. And Australians will be scratching their head today knowing that uh, the government that they thought was there wasn't actually the Australian government at all. So that's Anthony Albanese, not missing a trick. But by then, PK had been revealed that Scott Morrison had also assumed control over the resources portfolio, which was nothing to do with the pandemic. It was a political fix. But wait, there's more. Anthony Albanese eventually revealing this week that Scott Morrison, one year later, had done the same thing again, swearing himself in as Treasurer and Home Affairs Minister without telling those ministers. And the former Home Affairs Minister, Karen Andrews, was livid. I think that Scott Morrison needs to resign and he needs to leave Parliament. I mean, this is this is just unacceptable. And if this is the way that he is prepared to conduct himself without an adequate explanation, even though it is now going to be well past the time when such an explanation should have been made, then it is time for him to uh, leave the Parliament and look elsewhere for employment. So she didn't hold back, did she, Frank? She Karen didn't. Andrews there, very sh- shocked, but also really going quite far and sticking her neck out saying he should resign. Now, he hasn't resigned. He was quite defined in that press conference that he, he won't go. Still the member for Cook. He wants to be a quiet Australian, he says. 
he loves that term, doesn't he? Uh, the quiet Australian. And now he's one, he tells us. Although he did talk a lot at that press conference for someone so quiet. Uh, meanwhile, Liberal leader Peter Dutton is caught in what I think is quite a tricky situation for him. He obviously doesn't want to help Labor, but he also does not want to tie himself to this former Prime Minister and defend his actions because he, he you know, my understanding is that he doesn't think they're defensible and, and now he started telling us. I think, frankly, it's, uh, it's time for uh, cooler heads to prevail. The Prime Minister's come out of uh, uh, his holiday swinging and obviously uh, this is an issue that uh, he'll get his teeth into, but uh, there are bigger issues that, uh, frankly, that families of Australia are dealing with at the moment. So while Karen Andrews is calling for Scott Morrison to resign, others, including... Uh, former Prime Minister John Howard are saying he should remain as the member of for Cook. Um, he has his electors just elected him. Uh, that's all a bit of a sideshow, I reckon, though, Fran. I mean, it's up, you know, that's the way the system works. He'll either resign or not. Uh, uh, and it's, you know, that even if they call for him to resign, doesn't mean anything. I mean, basically, he'll resign when he chooses and presumably in some kind of consultation with Peter Dutton about when it's going to best suit the Liberal Party, but it's the writing's there on the wall. He's not going to be there at the next election. I think that's fair to say. I think it is fair to say, but the way he's sort of digging in is quite fascinating. <laughs> also, um, not that I expected him to stand up and resign because Karen Andrews asked for him to resign, um, but clearly he knows that on his own side there is deep, deep anger towards him and what he's done. So uh, other things we've learnt, he called the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, the former Treasurer, for those who don't know that the government, don't think I know that the government's changed. He called Josh Frydenberg, he called Matthias Cormann, didn't call uh, didn't call uh, the home of, former Home Affairs Minister Karen Andrews, though, um, to apologise. And even though in his Facebook post, which was lengthy, he he was apologetic about making the judgment in his press conference, he seemed to not really uh, be very apologetic, Fran. I didn't get the sense that he was apologetic at all, right? I mean, this is this is somebody who clearly thinks that he did um, do the right thing at the height of the pandemic, even if since it's come back to kind of bite him. Wherever you, however you look at it, though, this has been a bad week for the Liberals because he was the Liberal mm. leader. Even if Peter Dutton is distancing himself for, from it, it still hurts the Liberal Party. How do you think it's playing out in the political? I mean, it feels to me like Labor is, has never been so tantalised by a story, <laughs> but does it help them? Well, it's it's a gift for Labor. That's clear in this short term political arena. It's a gift for Labor, and we've seen Anthony Albanese jump all over it privately and publicly. Senior Liberals are furious um, for, for for simply as much for the fact that they're still being forced to defend Scott Morrison and those very character traits that you know the voters were telling him before the last election and and then voted as such that you know they hated, they didn't like it about him. He's sneaky, he's secretive, he thinks he's got all the answers. In his own words, PK at that election, he's a bit of a bulldozer. And one senior Liberal I spoke to uh, this week, um, you know, asking how how could Scott Morrison could have thought this was okay? What was he thinking? He said that once Scott Morrison decided he wanted something or didn't want something, there was always a bit of a crash or crash through, a bit of whatever it takes. And, you know, that comment reminded me of, of what Scott Morrison said about himself during the campaign. Remember, he talked about the Morrison men getting things done. That's mm. clearly his own personal brand, his persona. He thought he knew it all, he could fix it all. And we saw that, you know, a lot of times, PK, during his term as Prime Minister, that 
you know, also he didn't think much of the conventions of Parliament. You know, the Speaker often had to pull him into line, which was unusual. He closed down debate. He didn't take censure motions, those sorts of things. He didn't care much for the niceties and conventions of protocols of Parliament. And I think this looks a bit like an extension of that attitude. Fran, what do you make of his defence that, you know, I didn't use any of the powers other than the one in relation to resources minister? So, you know, that just shows that that, uh, it was all fine, nothing to see here. Well, well, I I don't make much of it at all, PK, because then why do it? I mean, as many people have told us publicly and privately, constitutional lawyers, uh, long-term parliamentarians, former ministers, it's not unusual for a minister to be appointed to step in for someone who's sick or out of action or overseas. It happens all the time. And the convention then is you it's gazetted and the prime minister or another senior member goes into the parliament and puts it on the table and says, this minister is acting for this. That's what happens. And it can be very quick. If the prime minister thought he was going to need to sit in for... For, for the health minister because he got sick, he could do that immediately. If he thought he might need to override or check the actions of the health minister, that's a different thing. And that's clearly what he did think here. He put it in his insurance policy because suddenly Greg Hunt would have all these amazing powers, godlike powers under the Biosecurity Act, we'd never seen used before. So he was troubled by that. But he should have taken that to his cabinet. They should have discussed it. Now, it was mentioned, it was told uh, at a, one of those emergency cabinet meetings they had set up in the early days of the pandemic. Senior ministers said they vaguely remember it being sort of said and they sort of moved on thinking, oh yeah, that's kind of business as usual. But what they didn't realise was it was being kept completely secret and then they didn't realise that he did it again a week later to assume the powers of the finance minister and they certainly had no idea a year later he'd used it again to take over the powers of the health minister or the treasurer and without, I mean, the treasurer is one of his closest working colleagues, his closest confidants, and he didn't even tell him. It's just bizarre. Should we bring our guest in? Yeah, let's do it. Samantha Maiden, political editor at news.com.au. Welcome to the party room. Well, thank you for inviting me. It sounds like a lovely party. It's always a lovely party and you have been the life of the party this week, Sam. On Monday morning, the news of Scott Morrison swearing himself into the portfolio of resources um, was revealed because you revealed it basically on Sunday night um, and he used the power as a resources minister to make a decision over an offshore gas drilling permit. The story then really kicked off from where it had been over the weekend. But, but Sam, can we just go back to the basic question, why? Why did Scott Morrison think he should swear himself in as health minister, finance minister, resources minister? And then later we knew... Um, Home Affairs Minister, Treasurer. Why did he do this in 2020 and then a whole year later? Well, I still don't think that there's any really legitimate explanation for it. I think that if you start with the health minister change, uh, there's arguments that that can be Mm, defensible. But I still don't really understand why it was necessary to the extent that if, for example, Greg Hunt was... God forbid, put on a ventilator or became unwell, right? Clearly you could just march down to the Governor-General and say, sign here. Mm. So I don't quite understand why it needed to be a shared responsibility for that quite then. It well, seemed except, to be there were two except elements. Didn't he, yeah. didn't, he, didn't he explain it in a way or give it away by saying 
he just had these extraordinary powers and I just thought, well, I trust you, mate, but just in case, you know. Yeah, I trust you, mate, but not totally. Yeah. So, I don't trust you that so, much. Like, so, yeah, so let's just go back a bit. I mean, basically um, Simon Benson and Jeff Chambers from The Australian have written this book called Plagued and um, they discussed uh, with uh, Scott Morrison in the preparation for this book various things and um, – the Prime Minister suggested that some of those interviews were, were in real time. I'm mm. not sure if that's quite accurate. I think that by the time he disclosed that, it might might have been a little bit later on. I'm not aware of the, the full dates. But well, he, he used the word contemporaneously, so he's he exactly did, what I, he's saying. But I don't think that that's entirely accurate. I mean, right. God forbid that I'm suggesting that Scott Morrison sometimes says things that are <laughs> factual. But, but in any case, the, the, the substantive point is that it was presented as it was described in the book um, by Greg Hunt and and Scott Morrison as an elegant solution, they believed, uh, to the problem. And so, you know, there's two elements to it. On one m- m- element, we're told, well, what happens if he's put on a ventilator? Well, that's no different to any other minister, really. I mean, what it really came down to is what you touched upon, Fran, which is this idea that he had powers that weren't constrained by cabinet. That's really what it's about. Now, why would Greg Hunt agree to this? I mean, my instinct is that he was covering his butt a bit, right? Because they were making these massive decisions, things could go horribly wrong. And I suspect that he was okay with it because it was shared responsibility. Now, the really key thing here, though, is they go to Christian Porter as the Attorney General and Christian Porter says, well, there's this pretty simple way to do this. And this is the thing I think really need to get, you know, the public to understand, because I think there are misunderstandings about this. Once he secretly signed himself on, it's not like he was being sent every email or sent all the briefings mm. or doing things, you know. It was, in a sense, and, and unless new information comes to date, it was, as the Prime Minister described, this kind of emergency reserve powers that he had up his sleeve. Now, the timeline is really important. So he, he takes control of health on March the 15th of 2020. That is with the knowledge and consent of the minister, Greg Hunt, and it's with the knowledge and consent of the Christian Porter who tells them how to do it. And he basically says, you know, we do this kind of in the past sometimes if a minister goes on leave or on on holidays, you you can sign other things along so we can get the paperwork moving. So so we'll just do this, right? And so off they went. Now, this is when Scott Morrison gets sneaky because two weeks later he decides, oh, I might just get into the Department of Finance. And so he sends another letter to the Governor-General and never tells Matthias Cormann. And then he's given this completely limp explanation that, Mm. oh, I thought one of my people would tell him, right? I mean, Mm. this is a guy who was sitting in meetings with Matthias Cormann probably for 12 hours a day sometimes at that point. Remember Matthias Cormann moved to Canberra during that period? Like he lived here, right? Well, and they were shoveling out billions and billions and billions of dollars. So, you know, Matthias Cormann would have been integral to the whole thing. And then he doesn't do anything for a year, right? He doesn't make any more moves. He secretly knows he has this thing up his sleeve. And then in April of 2020, about a couple of weeks, a month or so after Christian Porter moves into the industry portfolio, remember he'd been on mental health leave and, you know, all those allegations that he denied had been this tumultuous period. He moves into industry and basically the Prime Minister decides to do to him what he told him how to do, but he doesn't tell Christian Porter. And, uh, you know, that still hasn't been properly explained to me other than this explanation that he basically just went around the cabinet table and went, who has power in this room Unilateral that I can't powers. control? Yeah. Right? The, the, this is, the industry minister had the um, decision, or well, the resources minister had the decision, for example, to, it was a, it was, they were the decision maker 
in some of these situations, right? And it wasn't referred to cabinet. So he basically went around and went, who are the people that can have powers that I don't have access to? I will sign myself in on all of those people. So if they do something I want, I don't like, I can say, surprise. And yeah. that's what he did, you know, not eight or nine months later with um, with Keith Pitt and that gas project we can get to. But coming back to May of 2021, so he's, he's you know, I always keep saying it's like, you know, in NYPD Blue where they're chasing a serial killer and, they, and the, the kills start happening faster, right? Like at the end it kind of speeds up, right? So he does uh, industry in April of 2021 and then in May of 2021, bada bing, bada bow, he goes, Treasury? <laughs> and home affairs in one go. And it's one piece of paper this time. And actually, if you look at the thing that the Governor-General signed, it's home affairs and, ooh, it will take Treasury too. And then he moves in with, um, you know, he moves in with Josh Frydenberg. He's, you know, put having microwave dinners. He's, you know, washing their, their undies and hanging them on the hills hoist at, at, at you know, his house in Deacon. You know, I mean, it's so weird and awful. And, and and then the other thing is he said in that press conference yesterday, he's, he was like, I absolutely nearly laughed. He said, I had a, co- I had a conversation with Josh Frydenberg. was wonderful. Mm, He's my yes. best friend. Mm, now, Josh yeah. Frydenberg has been telling anyone that listens that he is He's livid. Angry. Livid. He's and so that's angry. the word that is, I think, you know, has been used in multiple stories and multiple sources. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and that's how the broader Liberal Party and lots of the senior leadership see it as well, that, you know, one thing to do it to some people, but he even did it to Josh, who apparently was his closest confidant. Look, the prime in, ex-Prime Minister, be very clear here, says he did didn't want to tell the ministers because he didn't want it to be misconstrued and misunderstood. That's what he says. So does it go to trust? Uh, he thought that they would get a bit paranoid if he was to tell them. And is it because they were right to be paranoid he didn't trust them? Well, I think it's really simple. If he told them, he would not have been prime minister, right? I mean, they would have rolled him. If this had come out, right... Uh, and, and I have to say, I've seen some criticism of the authors and I, th- I think some of it is quite unfair because it's quite clear from the book they didn't know about all of these people not knowing, right? I mean, they were basically told that Greg Hunt knew and agreed to it, mm. right? Uh, so, you know, this idea that, you, you know, like, oh, they knew about everyone else, they knew about five people, they didn't, right? And Scott Morrison obviously didn't tell them. Um, and that yeah, goes, yeah. Sam, that goes to the, Sam that Scott Morrison, Morrison doesn't tell people a lot of things. I mean, this whole tendency for secrecy that, you know, Sean Kelly's written about quite a lot. He, you know, remember, in, of course you remember, he tried to keep the Hawaii holiday a secret. Of course you remember. He Aloha. kept his invitation request for the Hillsong pastor, Brian Houston, to be at the White House dinner with Trump a secret. I think that the first example of this was really in relation to Operation Sovereign Borders after the 2013 election, mm. right? And um, I was going back and looking at Laurie Oakes wrote a really great column that was quite influential at the time. You may even remember it, uh, where he basically said this guy has gone on a power trip and he is completely, um, you know, disrespectful isn't even strong enough. He's sort of just contemptuous of the media. And he would have those, you know, press conferences, you may recall, where he'd be like, you don't know what you're talking about. You on water matters. Wrong. And on Water Matters, and then, like, journalists would say, all right, well, can, can you just help us get our facts straight? Um, you know, well, I, I don't have to tell you that, right? Like, it was just, mm-hmm. it was it was undemocratic, right? And the final stanza of that column that Laurie Oakes wrote basically said Tony Abbott should have a word with him and tell him to pull his head in. And I think that if Tony Abbott did have a word with him, it didn't work because 
all of these tendencies, I think, were just writ large. I mean, God knows what else we don't know about this man and what he got up to, Mm. to be perfectly frank, because he had no um, respect for the role the media plays in public, you know, in, in, in the institutions of society um, to to uphold democracy, right? Like he just had no respect for that of any kind. And even though in some respects you can say it's a minor, it's not a huge deal, right? That whole thing with Brian Houston and the White House was such a good example of it because he should have just said that he was going to Hawaii and not tried to fib about it. He should have just said, yeah, I asked Trump's people if Brian Houston could come, right? And there was something really like delusional about that press conference. Like his arguments at the start of the press conference were being rebutted by his own words by the end. But in that press conference too, Sam, he he did concede that it was a different power he sought, a bit different reason he sought power over the resources ministry than over the others. The pandemic argument was for the other four, but as you mm. as you revealed, he took over the resources ministry so he could override basically the decision that Minister Keith Pitt was about to make on a gas drilling but, permit but off it, the new country. It had nothing so to do he, with COVID. I'm, I'm still a bit confused by this because when we say the the decision the minister was about to make, I mean, maybe, maybe I don't know enough about it. Maybe he was on to Keith Pitt back then, right? But it just seems really peculiar that I mean, I'll just have to go back and look historically of what was in the news around eight. Like, it seems to me that the change was, the substantive change was that Christian Porter went into the portfolio. And, uh, you know, I have to go back and look exactly when Keith Pitt went into that portfolio. I think he was in that portfolio when, you know, he overtook him. But he didn't use the power for a very long time. It was almost like he wanted to, you know, allow Keith Pitt to arrive at the correct conclusion. Well, he was probably trying to persuade him to. I mean, you know, privately, the Prime Minister and the Minister presumably would be talking about these things. And although the Minister has the decision under the Constitution to make the decision in this case, you know, a Prime Minister presumably is trying to bend him to, (laughs) to his will. And if he can't, then normally he might sack him. He might say, well, no, it's not going to yeah. happen under my government. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think that, uh, like, without having to check it, I think that he came in to the portfolio in October of 2020. So I just, I still don't know what the trigger was in April, to be honest. But the other thing that I think is really fascinating is, like, people sort of loosely throw around this idea that the other two home affairs were, um, and Treasury were related to the pandemic. I think that's baloney. Because yeah. if... If there was some pressing need to do it, why didn't he do it in 2020 when he did the mm. others, right? There is a, an argument that May was when things were starting to heat up again, you know, and the borders were starting to close again. Like, I, I get that, that, but I don't really see what was going on with home affairs. And I also think it's really fascinating, and then, there might be nothing in this, but I just think it's really fascinating that, like, he obviously had some sort of wherewithal or survival instinct that not to do it to Peter Dutton, right? But then as soon as Peter Dutton was you know, out of the portfolio and Karen Andrews comes in, he was like, bam, I'm in there. And the other thing is, look, I know that maybe this is just a personal obsession of mine, but I think that it is like worth remarking on that. He has called Matisse Coleman to say, oh, sorry, mate. Right. And he's called Josh Frydenberg to go, oh, brother, brother. Right. And he has refused to call Karen Andrews. He hasn't had any conversation with her. I don't, I'm not aware of whether he's called Christian Porter or not. Um, but, you know, she's the person who's come out the strongest. Yeah, it's a bad look, isn't it? it, well, it but it's a pattern of behaviour because, he, yeah. remember, he did it to Fiona Martin as well when she lost her seat. He yeah. rang virtually every other MP that lost her seat. and So he won't call women 
who speak out against him. That's right. He Women who speak them. up against, that's right. So yeah. there's another angle to this story I just want to draw you out on, um, and this is the Governor-General. Now, in a statement released on Wednesday afternoon, we're recording this on a Thursday morning, a spokesperson for the Governor-General said uh, retired General David Hurley had no reason to believe that appointments would not be communicated. What's your analysis Sam, of that, that he's clearly trying to put um, Scott Morrison in it, that he's assumed he'd make these things public. But what's the role here for the Governor-General? Look, I think that it is technically correct, but I think that there are things that he could have done, right? Um, So, you know, Troy, like uh, people that I've spoken to have made the point that, you know, the Governor-General can't necessarily say no, but they can slow things down and ask more questions. Um, Troy Bramston has made the point that he should have used his capacity to counsel and warn and that they have been made public. Like, I mean, he has made the point that, um, you know, there's plenty of examples in vice-regal correspondence where the GG counsels the Prime Minister and the GG must uphold the Constitution. He must have known that the ministers needed to be revealed to uphold proper cabinet governance and parliamentary accountable. I mean, accountability. I think that David Hurley has been a disappointment in that role. Um, he was put in that role by Scott Morrison and, um, you know, he seems to be just doing what Scott Morrison says, which presumably is why Scott Morrison thinks he's such a wonderful man and any criticism of his him is egregious. Oh, I've, I have a bit of a different view on this, this GG. I, I know, you know, he and his wife do a lot of grassroots stuff and they, they were up at the Lismore floods and people really appreciate that. So I think they have... You know, there's some elements of the job he's performing quite well. I just think he was no match for Scott Morrison in this sense and, and you know, probably unaware of how far he could push back or was it even his role or, you know, what's the advice coming well, to come him around on. this? I mean, come on. Like, it's not like he's working at McDonald's and he's not sure, you know, which way no, to put the hash the, browns the, in the machine. No, but I if mean, the if conventions he... are that you sign off on this recommendation comes from the Prime Minister and that's your job, you do it, you know... Can we really blame him for not giving Scott Morrison a lecture about you must make this public? Really, I, I'm not sure. I, I think you can ask why he didn't ask more questions for sure. Right, and, that, I, and that's I really what do. the question is. The other thing is just on this angle of the Governor General, right? And there's different constitutional experts that have different views on this, but I think the fact that there are there is so much confusion is part of the problem. By the way. The Governor-General, though, is now part of the story. As soon as the Governor-General is stuck, you know, there are people really calling for the Governor-General to explain. That is in and of itself a problem, isn't it, Sam, right, <laughs> in terms of... Yes. It's a problem like, for the Governor-General, that's for sure. Well, but it is, and, and for the integrity of, of our political structure and system. Um, that It is an issue that now has to be dealt with. Like, that statement can't be the last word, can it, Sam? Well, I mean, we'll see what comes out of whatever Anthony Albanese is doing. Um, look, I think what's going to happen next, I suspect, is that Anthony Albanese is going to release the Solicitor General's advice on Monday and, I, you know, my instinct is that it's going to say this was legal, right? Um, it was legal but it p- perhaps, you know, suggests weaknesses in the system and some sort of requirement that the Governor-General is more... Um, transparent in the people he's meeting with. I mean, like, I don't really quite understand why he can put up vice-regal notes saying that, you know, we met with the scouts today, but he doesn't say, I signed something to sign away Treasury to the Prime Minister. I don't... Well, I think what we're going to see is less kind of codifying of the Governor-General's powers and just more codifying of 
of the parliamentary convention, oh, when there's a change sure. of ministry, this has to be gazetted. Bang, sure, that's it. Of course, of course. And I think that that is completely reasonable. Um, I mean, just, just just finally, you know, Anthony Albanese jumped on this, was all over it, his political mm. instincts sort of going, weep, 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 you know, don't miss this. And he hasn't. And there's, you know, a fair bit of commentary about, well, he has to be careful not to get too distracted by this point scoring. But he does have this legal advice coming. There is some prime ministerial and, and, and government action required. But do you think this whole scandal bolsters the case for a royal commission into the pandemic? Will Labor go there? Will they rush there, do you think? I think that, I don't think they'll rush there because they've always sort of said they'll wait until the pandemic um, kind of is settled down. Like, good, na- good luck with Good luck with that, that is it going to? Um, but I think that it's fairly, I think it's, you shouldn't need this to call a royal commission into the pandemic. I mean, it's completely obvious that an event of, of such a momentous nature with so many people dying, including in aged care, um, requires a, a Royal Commission, requires mm. an inquiry to learn the lessons. I think that is, I mean, goodness gracious me, we have Royal Commissions into far less. Um, so, you know, absolutely, I think that they should have an investigation into that. I do think that Anthony Arby's made a few missteps in his response to this. I thought that, you know, I'm not sure why he held a press conference after Scott Morrison. I just would have left let Scott Morrison breathe. And I think there is a bit of a danger that he looks a bit like an opposition leader rather than a prime minister. I think perhaps he should have stayed a little bit more out of the fray and maybe sent in um, some other attack dogs to do it. But I mean, that's probably something that only really exercises the political class. Mm. Um, You know, in terms of what people see on the 6pm news or in the paper, they'll see one line or a grab or whatever um, the story was about Scott Morrison. The only other thing I'd say about Scott Morrison's press conference, look, he commenced it and uh, ended it by saying that he was really distressed by um, the cameras turning up at his house. Mm. And I think um, we can all understand that the, the price that politicians pay, particularly their families pay, in terms of intrusion can be quite high. And I, and I think on a personal level I can entirely understand why his family and his two teenage daughters would be distressed at being photographed as they, you know, came and went. I can very much understand why that would be upsetting. But I do think that the way he used that was manipulative Mm. uh, to the extent that, as others have pointed out, I haven't seen any photographs of his two girls in the paper. So he's kind of um, making an allegation as if um, his children are being hounded, and, and, but nothing's been published. I mean, obviously they're there to get a photo of him. Mm. Um, and, you know, there, I think there may be some pictures from time to time of his wife and they're moving in, but I haven't even seen. So if they're taking the photos, they're not using yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it was a straw man. I think you're right. He was just trying to sort of get the moral high ground, wasn't he? But it was quite manipulative, right? Yeah. Because once again, he was trying to, you know, paint himself as the victim and paint the media as terrible and, and it's all this distra- distraction about, you know, what we're here to discuss is what he did, which was incredibly deceptive. And, you know, I just think he had a pattern all along of sort of, you know, dragging the family into things. I remember he did that 60 Minutes interview where he was saying that, you know, basically saying that Hawaii was his wife's Jenny's idea. Jenny's idea. Like, that yeah. Really? Like, you know, you're the Prime Minister. Take responsibility for your actions. But I do understand it would be distressing for the family and I, and I think that's reasonable that... You point that out. I just think that it was used in a very manipulative manner. I mean, has he made any previous complaints to media outlets about this? I don't know. Mm. Or has he just waited until he's in the gun and kind of thrown that into the mix, you know? Hey, Sam, thanks for letting us pick your enormous brain on such a complex story. Thank you. 
will move to questions without notice. I give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, uh, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order. And it's time for our question time. Thank you for your questions after our Twitter call-out. Alison Kernow asks, the secret minister saga leaves Dutton in a terrible position and it's likely Morrison will continue to be a drag on the LNP ability to reset. What is worse for Dutton in the long run? Stand up and censure Scott Morrison now and risk losing a by-election or stand up, stand by rather Scott Morrison and risk the next election? Fran? Well, I I mean, I think as we've mentioned, Scott Morrison, in, I'm very clear on this, will not be there at the next election. He is planning on leaving sometime within then and I presume he wants to do it at a time of his choosing, perhaps when he's got a job lined up or, or something. You know, should... Peter Dutton stand up and censure Scott Morrison. Yes, he should. Should he demand he resign? I don't think he should because really there are other democratic principles in place here, in, you know, including that the electors of Cook have just elected him. So in the knowledge that he's going to go, I think Scott, um, Peter Dutton can stop short of that. But, you know, what's the risk for Peter Dutton? Well, the risk for all of them, and they're not happy about it, is that A, this gives Labor a great big free kick. B, it reminds everyone why they voted the Liberals out last time and therefore, you know, how could this bunch of politicians have supported Scott Morrison for all those years with all these character traits that are just simply indefensible. C, it means Scott Morrison, if he was likely to be any use to them in the future as a former Prime Minister who led them through the pandemic, and, and there are some, you know, there are some claims that of, of good management that the Morrison government can claim through that pandemic, I think, um, you know, that he'll be useless to them now because his reputation is so tarnished through this kind of behaviour. So that's another former Prime Minister they can't really call on in the way they probably can't really call on Malcolm Turnbull, given the way he's always putting the boot into them now, et cetera, et cetera. But most importantly, I think some are concerned that their whole legacy of the pandemic management, which is what they are, many of them very proud of, you know, you hear the, the former Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, talk talking about the the record low unemployment, talking about the economic um, performance of Australia post-pandemic compared to other countries around the world, talking about, you know, the the low death rate that uh, Australia got through those... wild years of the the first years of the pandemic with. You know, the management, there is some claims there by the former government that they managed that well, and that's one tick that former Prime Minister John Howard gives Scott Morrison, for instance, that that legacy will somehow be besmirched through all of this too, and they are not happy about that. No, look, it is hard for Peter Dutton to manage. Um, I think people should listen very closely to what Peter Dutton is saying. I think there is a perception that he's standing by Scott Morrison. Not what he's doing. Uh, I think he's um, just being uh, very strategic about the way that he handles it because to go in too hard, too quickly before the solicitor general advice, which is coming out on Monday, would be would be too soon. Um, this does cause the Liberals big problems because the, the legacy issue is big, Fran, and what Labor is seeking to do here um, is also to really tarnish that legacy. Mm. This is a, this is deliberate. This is politics too. They they are seeking to do that because, and that's why. Listen carefully again to what 
Anthony Albanese says he doesn't just want Scott Morrison in this. He says, how about all of his his uh, front bench, his cabinet, who um, were enablers essentially of this man? He's Yeah, he drops in Peter Dutton's name he? into that yeah, list. Quite. Yeah, because he knows Scott Morrison will go and then he wants to tarnish the coalition brand, right, more broadly. That's what he wants to do here. Um, this guy's been around a long time. Like he knows what, what why it's so, so important. If you look at what the Liberals did to try and really smash the Keating era, for instance, and there was a lot of criticism inside of the Labor Party that they didn't own the positives enough and they allowed themselves to to really be smashed by Howard and um, Peter Costello. Well, I think there's a bit of a legacy thing going on here too where Anthony Albanese, you know, wants to kind of smash the entire uh, nine years of that government too in the long-term prospects of the Labor Party. So there, there's there's a bigger legacy issues going on here for everyone. Yeah, there sure is. I think that's true. Well, that's it from us this week. Thank you for your questions. We love getting them. We had a whole sweep of them uh, this time, which was terrific. People really are exercised about this story. You can tweet using the hashtag ThePartyRoom or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And remember to follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. You don't want to be doing that. We'll be back next week. See you, PK. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.